Hello everyone and welcome back to Artsing About, the art podcast for everyone. My name is Georgie and I know something about art. My name is Sophie and I know very little about art. Big pause there, Sophie. Yeah, sorry, I thought you got it wrong, but you didn't. <laughs> what, you got confused by how much I know and how little you know? I don't know, know. let's move on. <laughs> so whether you know all there is to know about art, know a little bit like Sophie, have listened to all four of our episodes now, or you've listened to none at all, we're just here to make art fun, interesting and open to everyone. How has your week been? It's been good. It's been all right. What have you been up to? Oh, I started a a new TV show. Oh, right. It's called Uncoupled. Okay. On Netflix. Oh, it's a bit like Love Island, but not. No, that's not what I was going to say. Yeah, no, it's with, um, what's his name? The guy who plays Barney Stinson. Neil Patrick Harris. Oh, Neil Patrick Harris. I know him. It's him. He's in it. Oh, okay. And it's about um, a couple and it's one of the guy's 50th birthday and Neil Patrick Harris is like throwing him a big party but before the party he gets a phone call from their housekeeper being like I think you guys I think you've been robbed mm. he's like that's so weird and, he, and the housekeeper's like yeah it's really weird they took wine they took some towels like but like nothing else he's like that's really weird sees his partner and his mm. partner is like just before this big surprise party his partner's like I've moved out <gasps> So I thought it was a reality show. No, it's like a sitcom. Oh my gosh. It's real, I'm enjoying it. The, yeah? uh, the thing is, I watched so much How I Met Your Mother when I was younger that I, mm. I can't not see Barney Stinson. You can't not see, yeah, yeah. sure. This is a weird anecdote because you're looking at me and I no, don't think I'm, you've seen How I Met Your Mother. In, I'm inter- I know about How I Met there Your Mother. You How's your week been? Yeah, it's been fine. I also started a new series. It is called The Ipcris Files. Yes. Or Ipcris File, which was originally a Michael Caine film. Yeah, with what's his name from... Joe Cole. Yeah, who I saw in a pub recently. I think that our Mr. Soundman looks like Joe Cole. I think... I don't. Sorry. Joe Cole is Peaky Blinders, Joan Cole. Yeah. Joe Cole. Joan Cole. Joan Cole. But it's also got... Gosh, I'm really good at names normally, and they're all just going from me. Um, That's been out for quite a while, though. It has. Yeah, my parents watched it. It came out in about April. But it just keeps coming up as a really recommended box set on ITV, and it's got, like, 7.5 on IMDb. And actually, I'm really enjoying it, because I think... Specific reference there. I know, I just... I I (laughs) gauge a lot of what I watch on IMDb, which I probably shouldn't do. But it's a really good one, because I think that, sort of, with thrillers and um spy films i'm watching it and i'm enjoying it but i don't actually understand what's going on but so far i've understood everything that's happened that's good that's a good sign you know when they're like so so and so who once was in this country also happened to betray this person and yeah. you're like whoa where the heck am yeah, i yeah, yeah. but actually this one is quite simple it's quite neat and compact and good and just there we go. Really enjoyable easy watch i'm really enjoying well, it well there you go folks two recommendations Now, because it is about three o'clock in the afternoon that we're recording this. Yeah. We've, so, we've gone a bit earlier today, so we thought it was inappropriate for wine and cheese. It's inappropriate. It's inappropriate. <laughs> it is not moral or legal. <laughs> Elite is it's not illegal. No, it, it is it is it is legal. But I just thought but you, Yeah, I know what you're saying. So Soph and I have decided that today we're not actually gonna drink wine. We're going to do a sort of 11s's. Kind of, well, it's not 11s's, it's, it's 3 o'clock in the afternoon's. It's kind of like, we're just going to do off snack vibes. Snack vibes, drink snack vibes. vibes. Kind of afternoon, little refreshments. Something a little bit different. I am so hungry. Okay, do you want to get the food out yeah, first or I should do. I get the drink out first? Oh no, we do drink first, don't drink? we? You go first. Okay, I really hope the drink compliments the food because you've always you're always kind of with wine and cheese. You know you're not going to go far wrong. It's always going to kind of work. Okay, come okay. on, get them out. Right, so <laughs> oh. I have got uh oh a Biona organic peach apricot and apple pressed juice. Oh, I'm up for that. Yeah, mm, it looks really good. I actually salivate I picked this up at wait for it. Whole Foods. Oh, look at you. But I didn't Someone's just, racing through the ranks. You know how Whole Foods has... Um, oh, hang on. Ooh. Oh, what a great sound. Oh, it smells nice. Can I smell it? Mm. You know how Whole Foods um, actually has a supermarket attached to it? It's not just like an eatery. 
Because that's how I think of Whole Foods. I think of it as... That's the most stupid thing you've ever said. No, but... Whole Foods is a Whole Foods store. I know it is, but the one that Soph and I go to has got an upstairs section that has got lots of areas to get fresh cooked food. And then downstairs, it's a lot of dry goods. You can get your cheese and your vegetables. Yeah. And your juices. Um, so I always think of it as a bit like a marketplace upstairs, but downstairs is actually a proper supermarket. You're saying it, you, I know you know this, but you're saying it like you're the first person to realise that Whole Foods is a store. And I just want you to be aware of that. What, that it's... That you sound a bit of a wally. Because everyone knows that yeah. Whole Foods is actually a store. It's also, may I say, quite... Sorry, that was very mean of me. That was quite mean, but sorry, it was right. I was distracted as I was pouring. Sorry, <laughs> cheers. You never cheers, cheers. it does my head in. That's really nice. It's quite sour, but I love that. It's not that sour. Yeah, it is. It's quite thick. It's also, may I say, quite a continental bottle. Reminds me of holidays. It's a heavy bottle. I wouldn't say it doesn't go with my snack. Mm, but, but I wouldn't say go. it's like a match made in heaven. Mm-hmm. But that's fine. Okay, so what snack have you got? Well, I, I did actually stay on the cheese vibe. Oh. But like, not cheese. Oh. Have you ever had them? Oh my goodness. The, the cheese straws. <gasps> got cheese straws. Uh-oh. Oh, oh FNL. There's crumbs everywhere. They're my really gosh. good. There's there's two for each of us. They look... Have you never had them before? Amazing. So, Sophie has got us cheese straws from Gales. Cost an arm and a leg, may I add? Well, Which I know, I went to Gales, but Gales is overpriced. Gales is overpriced. The problem is when you find a cheese straw this good. Harry and I really struggle with coffee at Gales. Why? Mm, I think it's just quite sickly. I don't really know. Harry, can you put your finger on why? It's very strong, isn't it? It is strong. It's strong coffee. I love the coffee at Gales. We've but just... I have oat milk, so maybe it makes it a bit creamier. We've just had a couple of experiences there where oh my 20 minutes after drinking, we both feel a little bit... Ooh. Oh, I have had that with them, actually. This is amazing, however. Good, right? Mm. So good. It's got really crispy cheese on top. Mm-hmm. I think mm-hmm. this cheese goes perfectly fine. Okay. Yeah. I don't want to start an argument. I'm not, no. I'm, you know. I don't disagree. I just don't know if it's, like, match-made. No, Harry, don't do that. Oh, God. Harry was about to dip his cheese straw into his juice. Grow up. It's a four-year-old. The thing was, I just wanted to... I was going to get um, Tesco's own orange juice. Mm-hmm. But I thought, actually, for people listening, it's a little bit more interesting, because they know what it tastes like, Tesco's own orange juice, to go for a slightly random brand, a slightly different drink. Mm-hmm. We're kind of using this as an opportunity to recommend our favourites, I suppose, aren't we? I think it's specific recommendations. Mm-hmm. Can I make a recommendation that is never going to come up in this podcast, but I cannot recommend it enough, mm. is Tesco's Plant Kitchen Vegan Pizza. Now, oh. I am not vegan, but the vegan pizza is quite small. It's kind of a kid size one. And it is the perfect after a night out snack. What's special about it then? I can't exp- It's something about the cheese or the vegan cheese and the tomato ratio. It's really crispy but creamy at the same time. Oh, I'd, you, no, I'm not keen on the creaminess. So, just trust me on this, okay? okay? Sophie is the worst person at taking recommendations. I really am. She's really bad. catastrophically bad. I actually have a note section on my phone of recommendations from Sophie, and I follow them, don't I? I listen to yeah, all your recommendations. But I am really good at recommendations. You are, but so am I. And you never bloody listen to me. Right, on Should that note, move on? let's move let's on. Let's move on. Before really, I'm going first, right? Really start having a fight. Yeah, um, okay. you're going first, sure. Yeah, uh, yeah, because you went first last week. Mm. I am doing this week, Dropping a Hand Dynasty Urn by Ai Weiwei. So this was in 1995. This was maybe like, it was a really important work for Ai Weiwei. Right. Because it kind of started his line of like provocative really provocative really eye-catching and kind of people talking about him and anyway Mm -hmm. so it's kind of patient zero i almost want to say sure so should we give a little history about who ai weiwei is please do so ai weiwei was born in beijing in 1957 and he grew up in difficult circumstances Mm. his father was a poet and was persecuted by the chinese communist government and exiled to a far western province in 1981, I moved to New York, so 
a very different place sure. to China. In 1981. In 1981. So very, very liberal. Yeah. Yeah. Very different, you know. And he's already been exposed to kind of imposing government rules and things like that. So he's completely, he's gone to a completely different place. And there he studied visual art. Um, I think he went to Parsons School of Design. Mm. Yeah. And he began working as an artist. And he actually did a lot of, like, street art and stuff. Cool. And um, during this time, he developed a deep appreciation of Marcel Duchamp's mm. ready-mades. This is very important. Right. So, ready-mades are found objects of everyday use elevated to the status of art. And they're implied critique of cultural value systems. This is very important in terms of, like, this exact piece we're going to look at. Okay. Then in 19- so, for example, I'm I'm just you, not that Marcel Duchamp did do this. He's taking a cushion and he's going, "This is art, and this is a criticism of society in some way." Yeah, but he'll probably do something with the cushion, right? This was actually not the first time that IYA did something with a hand dynasty urn. He actually painted the Coca Cola logo onto one before this. Mm-hmm. So he's kind of really experimenting with this kind of like changing preconceptions about old objects and things like that. Anyway, so in 1993, upon learning that his father was ill, he returned to China. So, politically, Ai Weiwei was a member of one of the first pro-democracy avant-garde groups to emerge in China in the immediate aftermath of the Cultural Revolution, which was 1966 to 1976. He has also, politically, he's been arrested several times, Mm -hmm. right up until, like, recent years. He has like protested a lot of like some of the uh Chinese government's decisions on things and mm-hmm. he's been arrested and like psychologically tortured mm-hmm. and in the west actually a lot of galleries and a lot of um authorities have protested his arrest okay. but obviously he's basically really famous really controversial controversial in China controversial in China yeah sure. so basically in his career these provocative pieces gained him international fame and acclaim and like in the west he's like adored people love him but in china he's a bit of a his his critique of chinese authorities kind of means he's a, he's a bit of like the problem child they don't really know what to do with him because the government's ongoing attempts to have positive relations with the west means that they want to like work with him because the west love him but equally he's like very critical of them so they don't sure. really there's a bit of a there's tension there right So that's who he is. Okay. And this is one of his first, like, super, super, super provocative works. Right, let's go back. It's 1993. He's been in New York for 10 years. And obviously in the 80s in New York, it was a very political, very charged time. Mm -hmm. And now he's back in China. Mm -hmm. He's back in China because his father's ill. And his father was his hero, the biggest influence on his life. And it was around this time that Ai Weiwei became fascinated with China's traditional heritage that Mao who was the kind of like head of the cultural sure. revolution, had tried to wipe out during that time. So this urn was from the Han Dynasty. Do you know anything about the Han Dynasty? Nothing. Right, okay. I Again, this is a very, very, very condensed version. There's so much more out there mm-hmm. about this piece as well. But anyway, so the Han Dynasty was a very long time ago. It was 206 BC to 220 CE. So... How long is that? That's like 2,000 years ago. Right. 2,000 years ago. And the Han Dynasty was considered a defining moment in the evolution of Chinese civilization. It lasted longer than any other Chinese empire. And during this time, they kept extensive records. So there's lots of, you know, there was lots of information from this time. It was an age of super economic prosperity and growth. And the Chinese sort of, again, this is me very much streamlining it, very much like idolized this time. So an urn that's been preserved from that time is like, like wow, big stuff. Amazing. Big stuff. So I went away decides to buy some Mm -hmm. it would have cost him like thousands of us dollars and he decides to be photographed smashing it oh my gosh this is a big big statement and as we can see if you look at the piece sorry it's a very blurred out version he's looking kind of deliberately at the camera Mm -hmm. so he and he's dropping it and he is very aware of what he's doing right He's, you know, it's not like it's an accident, he's just dropped it, or it's, you know, he's he knows what he's doing, he knows the message that he's sending. Yeah. Also, it's three photographs, which, as we know, is like, 
the most powerful number. Triptych. Yeah. Is an allusion directly to religious paintings. There you go. I didn't know that. So altarpieces were made predominantly as um, triptychs. Yeah. So with that basically means three works of art. You've got the middle panel and then you'll have two flanking panels. And that's quite a common motif. So if you see a work of art that's been divided into three pieces, it's quite often an allusion to yeah. religious works of art. Um, well, there you go. That's that's the information we I need, folks. I don't know if that, you know, Ai Weiwei would be doing that because I don't know if Christianity is particularly prominent. Well, he studied in New York for 10 right. years, okay. so probably. Fair enough. But yeah, he's... It's also kind of because he's looking at um, the camera. There's also a lot of thoughts that like this was kind of representative of like photography becoming a performance art. It's not just like yeah. capturing something. It's kind of showing like I'm here and I'm doing this. Right. So basically what he was doing by smashing an urn from the Han Dynasty was he's commenting on the communist cultural revolution previously mentioned mm-hmm. where Actually, during this time, many ancient artifacts of Chinese culture were destroyed in an effort to further the aims of Mao's communist agenda. Right. The communist agenda, there, this was an anti-elite society that carefully monitored access to information, especially about its dynastic... Dynastic? Dynastic? Dynastic. Dynastic say, yeah. history. Because obviously that was very different to what they were trying to sure. go for. And this piece, as you can probably imagine, had a lot of negative press there were like expert antique dealers calling it a work of desecration and they were outraged and in response i countered by saying chairman mao used to tell us that we can only build a new world if we destroy the old one Mm. this statement (laughs) refers back to the kind of the instruction of this communist regime of in order to build a new society one must destroy the and it's called siju don't know if I've said that right, which is the four olds, old customs, habits, culture, and ideas. So we spoke last week about Savarello? Savonarola? Savonarola. Savonarola. Yeah. So it kind of is an echo of that, I feel, kind mm-hmm. of getting rid of the past for the new. Sure. So what IOA is doing here is he's putting a spotlight on the hypocrisy of the atmosphere in China at the time. Can I I'll just interrupt you there though? That is so symptomatic. I think that's just been a global phenomenon. Whenever a new regime or school of thought sort of yeah, totalitarian ideals move in, one of the first things that seems to just be destroyed is art and culture. It's, you know, we saw it in mass during the Second World War mm-hmm. where great really important texts and books and paintings and sculptures were just destroyed en masse because of what they represented. Yeah. You know, that's why there's so much religious art that has been destroyed over the years because of its ability to incite belief and purport values that are no longer aligned with the new regime. And and that just shows how important art is. It has the power to provoke and change thought and change lives. I think that's amazing. So I almost don't blame them for destroying all the artwork. I mean, I do, I'm fuming. I want all the artwork, (laughs) but that's, that's why. Yeah, no, you're completely right. And that's why, you know, it's... It's also kind of indicative of like how you think the current thought process is right. And that's fine. That's human nature. But we know from history books that like your current thought process is going to be outdated. It's going to be wrong in some areas. Yeah. So what he's doing is he's putting a spotlight on the hypocrisy of the atmosphere in China at this time. Kind of going look at these like really different schools of thought that we have. And by dropping the urn, he's drawing attention to the crimes that this communist regime committed. Furthermore, there's like, a, there's like another level of hypocrisy in the sense that I is letting go of this social and cultural structure that imparts value. To deliberately break an iconic form from that era is the equivalent to tossing away an entire inheritance of cultural meaning about China. By dropping it, it makes you think, oh my goodness, that's something, you know, that's, that has so much worth to it mm. and you're just dropping it. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of also bringing attention to how um, it's important, but it's flimsy. Right. Do you see what I mean? Yes. It, uh, it's a bit meta. Uh-huh. I can't quite explain I it. I think you're explaining it. Yeah, I it's like, he's yeah. kind of going like, we give this this importance, but it's flimsy, and look at what how people have destroyed it. Sure. We, uh, we put so much value on this art, mm-hmm. but actually it's so fragile, and it can just be broken like that. 
it's so important, but it's also so easily thrown away. I sure. think that's what he's kind of saying again right. about it's the frigi- it's the physical fragility and the sort of broader yeah. fragility of what it is and what it represents. Yes, exactly. Okay, that's it. There we go. That's why you're the expert. <laughs> So it's not just commenting on the Cultural Revolution where they destroyed all this stuff. He's also commenting on how destruction plays into being art or not. Because some people argue, like, that's not art. You're just destroying something. You're actually destroying someone else's artwork. Mm-hmm. But he kind of, Ai Weiwei kind of thought he was, he was like, no, I'm, I'm revitalizing it. I'm giving it a new, new meaning. And repurposing it. Okay. Exactly. And there's a quote from Ai Weiwei. And he said, the power of my artwork, comes not from the act, but from the audience's attention, the challenge to their values. The act is easy. Every day we can drop something, but it is when we are forced to come face to face with this action and make a judgment. That is the interesting part. Mm. And ultimately, the work demands a judgment. Was the provocation and the global attention I garnered for the urn worth the destruction of the urn itself? Mm -hmm. And he's kind of he's passing it over to the viewer he's going does this mean something to you or does this not does them does you know Mao destroying all that stuff mean something to you or does it not does it matter does it you know it's kind of it's so meta he's so clever but this is where modern art and you would probably describe this as modern art is so different to older art or not modern art and people often go oh I could do that I could do that bit of modern art and sometimes don't get me wrong you could but what modern art is to me is philosophy it's more about the thoughts and the intentions and the the narrative behind the art as opposed to the actual physicality of the art itself Mm -hmm. It just means something completely different and it's not for everybody. It really isn't for everyone. And, you know, looking at that, I I don't particularly enjoy looking at it. It doesn't really do anything for me, but it's not about that. It's about what what Ai Weiwei is is representing and is and the philosophy behind it. And that's and freedom the difference. of speech. My God, like mm. that just blows my mind. Completely. Yeah. I see I have such a I remember when I first saw this. And it's weird because I'm used to it now and I'm kind of saying it was so provocative but like those words almost feel hollow because I'm telling everyone else about it but like I can still remember when I first saw it mm. and I was literally like... <gasps> but I guess like, I didn't know what it was when I saw it or did you know what it was when you saw it? I think when I heard that it was a 2,000-year-old vase and he dropped it, like when you just hear okay, that sentence, yeah, yeah, you're yeah, like, yeah. oh my goodness. Right, sure. And the fact that he's looking straight down the barrel and he's like, yep. Yeah. Sure. It's like... Just going back to the thing that I was saying about, you know, the audience having to make a judgment. Yes, he's comment he's commenting on the past. That's the that's so important, but he's also kind of saying to the viewer, like, okay, how much do you value our antiquity? Mm-hmm. And is it worth preserving? Mm-hmm. Like it's just and what I like about IOA's work is that like, yes, he ha- he has conclusions, but he's also he's not fully He's letting you come up with your own thoughts. Exactly. This is what I mean about it being provocative, though. It provokes thought. It's not that he's deliberately trying to wind people up or stir them up. It's just he's presenting something and he's going, now you make the decisions. And that, I think, is amazing. Yeah, completely. Because on one hand, he's going, oh, they destroyed all this stuff. Mm -hmm. But he's also destroying it. Right. So it's, it's very meta. Very meta. Very meta. And, okay, so now Ai Weiwei is a very well known artist in. I guess the art world, mm. I guess. And he's got this celebrity status. He's very active on Instagram, very active on Twitter. He's been arrested in China because of the stuff he's said on Twitter. And basically now, dropping a Han Dynasty urn is far... The the photographs, sorry, they are far more valuable than the original, Daniel, than the original urn. And in 2016, this limited edition work sold for nearly $1 million at Sotheby Auctions mm. in London. So it's... It kind of what goes around comes around. It's mm-hmm. an interesting um, fact. <laughs> Give it another 200 years and I wonder how this art will be received. Yeah. As you're saying, what goes around comes around. Movements and cultures and mm. thoughts and opinions change. And, you know, right now this is celebrated as whatever. But I wonder how, what the political landscape of China and the rest of the world will look like in 200 years and how this will be regarded then. Because yeah. I reckon they'll have a very different yeah very different thought process behind yeah. it 
it's also like I think that's the thing about history of art. It can sound quite dry, but actually, it's. <laughs> It's going to sound so stupid, but like it's also like the future of art. Yeah. The future dictates how you look back at things. Completely. And yeah, you're completely right. It'd be really interesting. One of the things you're meant to write in a history of art essay is when this painting was first released, contemporary viewers or viewers at the time would have thought this. Because actually, often we take for granted that how we feel about the painting now is exactly how people throughout history have yeah. always felt and will continue to feel for the future. And it's not like that. It's mm. just not like that. So particularly one like this that is kind of examining the transience of time, I suppose. Transience of time and also art. how the government can affect culture. That's something that will remain. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that is a conversation that will continue to evolve. Absolutely. The reaction to this piece of work was exactly what he wanted it. People were incredibly provoked, as I said earlier. Antique dealers were fuming with him. Mm. And he actually had two urns when this was taken. The first one he dropped didn't get captured on the photograph. It, like, didn't, like, he didn't, yeah, it didn't capture. So this is actually the sex. So he actually destroyed two urns. Oh, my gosh. And we kind of mentioned this earlier. Like, he's kind of disturbing our own perception of what art is. Is this Mm -hmm. art? There are so many people out there who are like, this isn't art, Mm. you know? But I, you know, I think he's commenting on how poorly we care for the past and how little we value it, how it can be bought, sold and easily destroyed. And there are actually some people who refuse to believe that Ai Weiwei smashed an authentic antiquity. And they insist that the urn was fake. Really? Mm. Interesting. Yeah. But anyway, that's, that's my piece. Right, I have got a slightly different piece of art this week. I love it. It's a very, very famous photograph, and it's by a photographer called Lucian Wallery. Uh, hang on, are you going to do the monster slide? Yeah, just bear with me. I want to slide over in a minute. I don't like the new, like, I don't like that you're it's telling me something before. Done it. No, we do the monster slide, and then you, then we tell each other. That's not how I'm doing it this time, okay? <laughs> Makes me feel weird. I picked it. Um, more for the moment and the person it captures rather than the kind of artistry of the photograph itself. I think you need to stop excusing it. You need to no, own no, no. it. I'm just explaining why I've picked it. All right. God, we're going to have like our third <laughs> bite of the episode. <laughs> it's more what it represents as a photograph because actually it's probably one you'll recognise and it, it's, it's done so much for history. It's established this icon and I think it just really magnificently captures the character of the woman I'm about to talk about. So, mobster slide mobster across slide. the table. You need to do your... Uh... Oh, for goodness sake. But I've got red lipstick on. You don't have to. You come to me on the day of my daughter's wedding. (laughs) That's your best one yet. I think the first episode was still my best. No, that was the best one. Should I tell you why? Why? (laughs) You looked a bit like a turtle. (laughs) (laughs) You know, over the hedge. Mm. You look like the turtle in that. Yeah, I know the one you mean. Am I going to take the deal or not? Oh, um, Josephine Baker. Josephine Baker. Oh, amazing. And you recognise the photograph. I actually don't. I recognise her, but I don't recognise the photograph. It's the most famous photograph, I think, taken of her. Right, well, and then I will have seen the photograph. It's it's what? We'll put it on the Instagram. Yeah. It's one that, you know, if people are describing Josephine Baker, it's the photograph that is often used. It's, the, it's actually the outfit that I was... that. Right. To me, I'm like, oh, So, as I said, it establishes a cultural icon, which okay. is sort of what I'll speak about. Let's but go for it. I spoke about her, actually. Very briefly, in passing, in the first episode, because I mentioned the Folie Bergère, and we'll come back to it, but that's where I got the idea to oh, speak about her okay. and sort of the artistic Ooh, representations excited. of her. So, what I had written here was, first of all, Sophie, do you know who this is? And you've already answered my question. It's Josephine Baker. So, Frida Josephine Baker was born in 1906 in Missouri, America. Her parents were both former slaves uh, of African and Native American descent, and she had a really very, very poor upbringing. However, she got really street smart playing in the railroad yards of Union Station. Now, cut there for a second. Can you imagine kids nowadays in England going and playing in the railroad yards? Can you imagine kids playing on the tracks? If anyone walks on the tracks or trespasses with British Rail, the whole country shuts down. Trains stop. No one can get home from work. It's absolute chaos. So the fact that this little kid was just playing sort of around and about the tracks to me is... But this is a what? This was years ago. I know it was years ago, but still, I'm just thinking in the present no, day. No, I agree with you. Dangerous. Very dangerous. So she started to work in laundry, just aged eight, um, to help support her family. And she actually worked as a live-in servant for white families. And she, unfortunately... Uh, 
but perhaps more surprisingly, at a really young age, at a really young age, eight. Um, oh my god! Experienced really, really terrible racial abuse at the hands of these people. So one woman actually physically abused her by burning her hands when she put too much soap in the laundry. Terrible. Um, and age twelve, uh, she dropped out of school. She became homeless. She Sounds. lived in. She was a servant and at school at the yeah. same time. Yeah, it seems this way. She became homeless, uh, she was living in cardboard shelters, she was eating out of bins, but she made a living by doing something she was really good at, and that was dancing on the corners of streets as just a troop, as a part of a troupe of other dancers, uh, and that was kind of how she was making her living. When she was just 13, <laughs> this is astonishing, she married. Um, she married a guy she had met whilst working at a club, however, it lasted less than a year and she wasn't very happy but, you know, she's 13 years old, so when is that ever going to work out particularly well? She then remarried at the age of 15 uh, in 1921. However, she divorced this guy four years later. In short, she had a lot of relationships, and I can't quite make sense of the dates of all of them. Right. But they're not necessarily that important to no, her story. It, it is in the sense of, like, so, again, looking at it from, like, our viewpoint, mm. she wouldn't have even done her GCSEs yet, and she's been married twice. That's right. how young she is. Yeah, She's a little girl, you know, she's not, she's yeah, not an she's, adult. She, yeah. But during her second marriage, her dance troupe that she had been dancing with on the corners managed to book a gig at uh, somewhere called the Plantation Club. So she goes to the Plantation Club um, in New York City and before she knew it, her career was on the up. So after a couple of auditions, she actually managed to secure a role in the chorus line of a touring production called Shuffle Along. I'd never heard of Shuffle Along but I don't think it's on stage anymore. But it's apparently a really famous musical that was really loved in America, um, specifically Broadway. And she was really delighted. But she was put on the end of the chorus line and she was really worried that all of the other girls in the chorus line were going to really upstage her. And she was like, hey, I want to be the centre of attention. Yeah. So she decided to bring elements of comedy into her work. Oh! So she stand on the line and I, it didn't actually say what she would do to make it funny. But the idea was that she was a bit of a caricature and she'd be a bit sort of stupid and clumsy. Oh, so, so she drew the attention yeah. to herself. She was like, right, you're not going to put me down. Yeah. I'm going to be the best of everyone. Here. Right. I'm going to oh, be way better it. than you. So despite the fact that she was on the end of the line, she was the one that was like, hey, guys, check me out over here. I'm hot to trot and I'm going to show all of you up. Brilliant. She was a great success. Um, and it wasn't long before, again, she was on her way to Paris and arrived there in 1925. And she was only 19 at the time. But, so she, oh my goodness. Yeah, she was 19. Huge. And also, if you think, just anyone at that time going abroad. I know. Oh my goodness. Mm. That's a big deal. Huge deal. Her family weren't particularly supportive. Right. Because that's what I wanted to ask. What were her family doing? I think. Um, when she was eating out of bins. Her mum wasn't very happy that she dropped out of school. I think that her dad had disappeared quite early on and then she had a stepdad who was really nice, but he was always unemployed. By the sounds of it, I think there was just, it was quite a turbulent home environment. But her mum specifically really wasn't very pleased about Josephine performing. But then I think later on in life, Josephine really tried to support her mum and her sisters. Um, I think by the sounds of it, they did the best they could. Um, but Josephine did amazingly. She, you know, made it to Paris. Yeah. So, yeah, she just became this instant success basically overnight for her super sexy, amazing, erotic dancing. Um, and also because she appeared naked on stage and everyone just thought, oh my gosh, wow, there's a wow, really beautiful really. naked lady on our stage. Um, and she was meant to return to America after her stint in Europe, but she just loved Paris so much and she just thought, why the heck would I go back to America? Yeah, fair enough. Um, she'd been asked to headline at the Folie Bergère, which is where ah, we come back to the first episode. back together. If you didn't listen to the first episode, Sophie and I spoke about, or Sophie and I, I presented it because it was my work of art, but we both spoke about um, a work called The Bar at the Folie Bergère. Um, and it was this just amazing uh, kind of opera hall where they did, amazing performances and drank loads it was like the place it it was was, oh what did we call it we called it nobu we We called called it it nobu the nobu of the time time. so she performed there so she yeah made headlines at the folie bergere and she performed this dance called the dance sauvage and she wore a costume consisting of a little skirt made of a string of artificial bananas yes that's that's, iconic isn't it and that's what she's photographed in here 
And this is the photograph which established her as this icon and this symbol of the jazz age. It's the, the void. fingers. I've seen the fingers before. Yeah. Yeah, I've seen this. People just really, really loved her for her artful clumsiness. It was polished, but at the same time, she was a klutz and everyone loves that. She was funny, but graceful at the same time. And um, She sounds amazing. She is. Ju oh. Just you wait, okay? Because oh. I'm not even getting started. Right. So, you know me, I'm a huge animal lover, but I think that I have to look at this, just try and remain sort of impartial, impartial or just um, not think too deeply about this. She did have a pet, Cheetah, called Chiquita, who wore a diamond necklace and would quite often break off stage, jump into the orchestra pit and basically just attack whoever was in there. So the audience love this because they just come along and just want to watch people get terrorised. It just added this extra layer oh of fun. <laughs> that reminds me of like going, like gladiator shows. I know, it just added time. more, it just added more fun. Well, I mean, it was a different time. So, so actually there are <laughs> lots of um, other paintings and works of art that show Baker with, um, with the with Chiquita. With, with Chiquita. Oh, hang on. I'm so sorry. Well, not the real Chiquita. Oh, right. I don't think there's just prints of Chiquita. Okay. Chiquitita, tell me what's wrong. So after a while, uh, Baker was just like the most successful American entertainer working in France. They absolutely worshipped her. Ernest Hemingway called her the most sensational woman anyone ever saw. And he was just obsessed with speaking to her in all the bars. Oh, yeah, because he was a, he like, he was in Paris, wasn't he? Yeah, yeah, he was, hobnobbing about. He just wanted to chat to her all the time. Oh, Picasso wow. loved her. Picasso made several sketches of her. Baker got advertisement deals. She, she endorsed this thing called Baker Fix Hair Gel. Um, she also endorsed and advertised things like shoes and bananas and loads of other cosmetics and just she was just this Amazing. great big staple of um, she was kind of the OG Instagram influencer just without the Instagram if okay, that makes sense. Okay, got you. That big. So she was actually so popular that she became a movie star and she appeared in four films that admittedly only really found success in Europe but nonetheless she was the first black woman to star in a major motion picture and this was called Silence of the Tropics in 1927 but despite her popularity in Europe the Americans actually really didn't like her very much and she decided to renounce her American citizenship and marry a French industrialist uh, thereby sort of by proxy obtaining French nationality now, okay, this is where, for me, it gets overwhelmingly exciting. Oh, okay. I'm all, I was already... I'm, okay. Right, you think there's wow. about four different stages to her lives and you're just like, what? In every single okay. one of them. Yeah. So, 1939. Yeah. Start of the war. When France declared war on Germany, Baker was recruited by the French military intelligence... As a spy. Shut the front door. I know. Wow, I am hook, line and sinker. Keep, keep it coming. So, because she was this really super famous, amazing person and everyone was like, wow, that's Josephine Baker, she was able to move around and hobnob with all of the high-ranking German officials in Paris, the Japanese officials, the Italian officials. She was able to go to embassies and important gatherings, um, cafes and nightclubs where they'd all socialise. And they'd speak to her because she was Josephine Baker and they thought, oh, hey, she's just a woman. She's getting all their secrets. She was garnering all of this information and she was feeding it right back to French military headquarters. When the Germans actually invaded France, she went to her home in the south of France and she actually hid members of um, the resistance and she supplied them with visas and just supported the Free French Movement, which was, wow. yeah, incredible. So even more than that, she actually was able to move around Europe because of her status as an entertainer and she'd go to England and speak to them about German military positions in France and their movements and sort of the locations of troops. And she wrote notes, I think I'm right in thinking this, she wrote uh, notes on her sheet music in Invisible Ink and then she would also sew notes into the lining of her pants because she could never be strip searched because she was this super famous woman and it was really <gasps> obviously rude to Amazing. strip search a really famous woman. I mean, it's rude to strip search anyone really, but isn't it? But that, that was what she'd do. 
So her work was actually so valuable that after the war, she was really heavily awarded with very important French medals um, and really acknowledged for her her work in support of the resistance and counterintelligence, which I just think is just amazing. Oh, so amazing. So she's gone from being this homeless woman living in Missouri to a very, very poor family. Then she's gone to New York. Then she's gone to Paris. Now she's a spy. So... After the war had finished, she was still performing, she was still doing amazingly, everyone still really loved her and cherished her, and America thought, hey, actually, do you know what? I want a bit of a slice of that pie. Josephine Baker, she's actually pretty cool, and they invited her to perform at a nightclub in Miami, but the audience was going to be segregated, and she quite quickly and very publicly made a demand that, hey, I'm not going to perform if the audience is segregated, I need it to be desegregated. The club eventually obliged. She she won, but she started receiving phone calls from people claiming to be from the Ku Klux Klan, um, you know, sending her death threats, God knows what else. And she said, hey, I'm not afraid of you. Um, and she became, after this, a really, really important member of the NAACP. She wrote articles, she delivered talks, she marched, she actually spoke alongside Martin Luther King. And in one of her speeches, um, something that she supposedly said was, I have walked into the palaces of kings and queens and into the houses of presidents and much more, but I could not walk into a hotel in America and get a cup of coffee. And that made me mad. And when I get mad, you know that I open my big mouth and then look out because when Josephine opens her mouth, they hear it all over the world. So when Martin Luther King was actually assassinated, his widow asked Baker if she would become the leader of the civil rights movement. And she thought about it for ages, but she actually declined because she had quite a lot of kids and she wanted to be around to see them grow up. And she didn't think she would be if she took on that role. Again, not that this is necessarily that important, but I think it just makes her even more of an icon. Whilst Baker had four marriages to men and several extramarital affairs with men, it is commonly believed that Baker also enjoyed sexual relationships with women, including, wait for it, artist Frida Kahlo. (gasps) So we haven't spoken about Frida Kahlo yet, but we're going to at some point. We've just got to wait for the right episode. But how cool is that? That potentially two of the most iconic women in history have potentially hooked up with each other. How brilliant. Even if it is just a rumour, I still kind of love it as a rumour. Yeah. So just going back to the children thing, um, Baker is also known, this is kind of the next bit in her life, because she adopted tons of children forming a family which she often referred to as the Rainbow Tribe. And although she loved these kids loads, it was also slightly political. It was kind of a social demonstration because she wanted to show that children from all different ethnicities, backgrounds, religions and nationalities could still be brothers and were all the same. Um, She raised all of her kids with different religions, but she just wanted to show that ultimately, no matter where you're from, everybody can exist in harmony and is at their core you know, human. So she, I just, oh my gosh, if this was my mum though, I would be so confused because I'd be so proud on one hand and actually at the same time so embarrassed because she let people tour the ground of her house so that she, they could see, and people would actually pay to come into the grounds of her house just so they could go and watch her kids play because she wanted to demonstrate and prove how happy and natural they all were with each other. (laughs) I actually think that's really sweet. She She got her kids to perform to audiences because she wanted to say, hey, look, look. They're all from different backgrounds. They've all got different skin colors and different religions, but look at them. They're all getting on really well and, you know, we're all best friends with each other. What an icon. I know. So um, on the 8th of April, 1975, Baker starred in a show that celebrated her 50 years in show business. Everyone wanted to see her so badly that they actually started bringing um, fold-out chairs so that people could sit down and watch her because there were just so many people wanting to see her. So four days after the event, Baker was found lying peacefully in her bed, surrounded by newspapers with glowing reviews of her performance. And unfortunately, she had suffered a cerebral hemorrhage. (gasps) She was taken to hospital, um, but unfortunately she died uh, in 1975 and she was aged 68 years old. She received a great big funeral. She actually attracted about 20,000 mourners, if not more. She was the only American-born woman to receive 
full French military honours and Baker's funeral had just the most huge procession. So yeah, this is Josephine Baker immortalised in the most fantastic photograph by Lucien Wallery. Um, and I feel like I haven't even touched the sides about her life. I was going through the information, cutting it out left, right and rhubarb. Um, and I know, as I said, this wasn't so much about the art. It was more about her as a person. But I think that the photograph is so evocative that he's had to do very little to actually conjure her character. Yeah, She just exudes it, you know. She is so full of joy and light and humour and wit and brilliance. And I think that just from a simple snapshot he's immortalized that and she sort of continues to live in all of our memories show me your unexpected art this is on my phone now not that it is unexpectedly artful it was just probably in a slightly unexpected place Mm -hmm. now i'm gonna slide this across to you okay oh delightful so this is a picture of me that you will be able to find on our instagram And there's a picture of me sitting naked in a bath with dog face paint on when I was probably three and a half, four. Your hair looks luscious. Curly. My hair grew up. It didn't grow down. I so badly wanted long blonde hair, which is why I then spent years bleaching it. And actually, I've just resigned myself to the fact that I've got short, curly brown hair. Oh, my God, you look miserable in this photo. You know this about me, but I, when I was little, believed truly that I was a dog. Yes, I have heard this before. Um, And I used to get my mum to walk me around the supermarket on a lead. Oh, Georgie. Um, I used to like to get in the dog's bed. Um, We had a cage for our last dog because he was a bit of a tyrant and he slept in there. And I used to get in the cage and lock myself in the cage. Why not? Um, And I was a pretty cheerful child, but there is this famous story of me coming back from the zoo and uncontrollably crying in the car saying, I want to be a dog. Um, Wow. So whenever I went and got face painting as a little kid, I would get dog face paint. So because I just wanted to be a dog so badly. That's so cute. And I called myself Chubby Lily. Right. Of all the dog's names to call yourself. It doesn't it doesn't roll off the tongue. No. Chubby Lily was what I call myself. I actually believe I have a video to prove this. I will see if we can upload that to the Instagram as well. But I also had a dog's tail, but it wasn't a dog's tail. It was a lion's tail that I used to pretend was my dog's tail. Oh, and on top of that, I actually had a dog costume that I would wear. So yeah, this is my unexpected art. Yeah. Or expected art, but in an unexpected place. And actually, it probably is a bit unexpected because... Why couldn't I have just sort of picked a fairy to sort of have on my face or a nice flower? I don't think it's... I think it's more... You've got this amazing... This is how I would interpret it. Mm. You've got this amazing elaborate face paint, but you look miserable. Right, That's sure. the unexpected part of it. I think it's probably because I've said to my mum, take a picture now because I'm about to lose my face forever. It's actually quite sad, isn't it? That is quite sad. Right, moving on quick before I start sobbing. Moving on, mine... um, So my niece has just turned six. Mm -hmm. And (laughs) she was in my room. And she was like, oh, drew me a picture. And it is the funniest self-portrait. She wrote her name. Mm -hmm. um, And I took the picture and I put it in my dungarees. Mm -hmm. And then at the end of the day, I found them in my dungarees and I thought that's amazing. And I keep it in my bathroom. Okay. Because that's where I think she did it or I found it. Anyway, this is in my bathroom and I see it every day. (laughs) Oh my God. Why has she drawn herself as a teddy bear? I don't know. But she honestly (laughs) did it in about 10 seconds. She's like, I'll do a drawing. And I was like, fantastic. Did it. I think that's quite detailed for a 10 second drawing. But she's not drawn herself as a human. She's drawn herself as an animal. And tell me what, I sent it to my brother and I was like, just found this. And he was like, oh, she does those all the time. (laughs) (laughs) It's like, she's like got this like, what's it called? Like, you know, when they're like, um, people like sign off thing, like, not oh, a signature, yeah, it's like a but signature. like, I know it's what like you a mean. signature print. <laughs> it's it's got that I know what I look like. Kind of like. It's got this quite sort of like disturbing side smile. It sort of kind of cuts up the side of her face. Let me see. All I know is it. <laughs> Do you see what I mean? I think she like, looks like. <laughs> it's like that. That's exactly what it's like. A rabbit slash cat. 
Yeah, and it's got these legs that sort of swing to the side. Stop saying these. That's her. That's what she thinks Sophie, she I'm looks sorry, like. I can't look at that and identify it as a person. I, I don't think that's Shanice. She's a beautiful little girl. She's it? Look, she's a beautiful little girl, I'm but sorry. that is not that. Imagine just like seeing, what's that in your dungaree? And that's what I found. I just can't believe she did it so quickly. Sweet art of the week. Sweet art of the week. I'm doing it, right? You're doing it this week. So, full disclosure, mm. this is a friend of mine. Okay. Is that all right? Do I know them? Uh, you know her boyfriend. Her boyfriend's a very good friend of mine. Right. And I met her through him, and she's okay. amazing. She's an illustrator. Her name is Georgie Proctor. Mm-hmm. She's fantastic. She does, like, these really, like, ethereal designs. Here, I'll pass you over. That's her website, and you can just scroll through. Oh, my god! Yeah, really. It really reminds me of fairy tales. Wow. Yeah. How does she make them? Is it... Are they digital prints? I'm not 100% sure. I think it's probably a mixture. This is amazing. Yeah, she's really cool. She's really, really cool. And she she's available to hire. She does things. As you can see, she's done stuff for different people. She is seriously, seriously awesome. I like her stuff a lot. Yeah, she's awesome. She's also one of the cleverest people I've ever met. Really? Yeah. She's just insane. She's awesome. So if we could send her some love. She's so, as you said... The thing that's amazing about this, and I will tell you this as someone who cannot do it, um, but is also, I suppose, an artist, is she's got a really clear style. Even though all of her work is different, um, it's got this kind of line that runs through it that means that you can tell they're by the same artist. And that's actually really, really difficult to achieve. It's a really hard Mm. thing for an artist to develop their own specific style. and, And it's so apparent that... She has. It's beautiful. I really love her stuff. I also personally am really drawn to artists, like illustrators. Yeah. I think there's something so... Like, I always mention her to you, but I just love Lauren Child. Yes. So much. Mm -hmm. Because I think there's a real storytelling aspect behind it. And, uh, yeah, Georgie's obsessed with illustrators. And I think you can tell that she really... uh, enjoys her work that yeah. sounds like a weird sentence to say yeah but she does she's really cool so yeah we will uh put her instagram on our instagram yeah put her website and stuff in our bio so you can check her out she's called georgie proctor so um, with the reference of instagram um please like comment subscribe review do the five star thing um you can i think even alert yourself that we've posted on yep. on podcasts yep subscribe subscribe um our instagram handle is artsing underscore about underscore podcast yes and our email handle is artsing dot about dot podcast at gmail.com sophie knows i can't remember um <laughs> so if you've got any questions comments concerns any thoughts, corrections to corrections. anything we said any other facts you know maybe about josephine baker that you think people would be interested in or other things about ai way or any of our previous artists do get in touch just just drop us a message we want to hear from you we want to hear i from say you. it every week we just want a chinwag. We just want an opportunity to talk. Or like, even like just sending an embarrassing story about art. Yeah, That please. could be really fun. Or a painting that you're like, I don't get it. I'm just so not into it. Yeah. For example, do you hate the Mona Lisa? I know a lot of people who don't like the Mona I'm Lisa. I'm not sure about the Mona Lisa. I was just using it as an example. Yeah. I like the song. Mona Lisa. Mona Lisa, Mona Lisa, men adore you. I like the film Mona Lisa Smile. I've never seen it. Always wanted to. We'll watch it together later. Yeah, I'm up for that. On that note, everyone, thank you so much for listening. And we will see you next episode. Bye. This has been Artsing About with Georgie Turner and Sophie Doyle. Sound and music by Harry Jones. If you would be interested in hearing where Sophie and I complete our research, please contact us via the email address in the description.